0: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Welcome to Miss Women and our podcast series Left or Right? The Straight Path Please My name is Umar Abdullah and I'm very happy to welcome you back to another episode. Today, inshallah, we are going to be looking at the genealogy of conservatism from the Magna Carta to modernity. Let's get started with our dua from Imam haddad inshallah. bismillahir rahmanir rahim Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Nawaitu ta'alamu wa ta'aleem. Wa al wa al Wa wa والإفادة والاستفادة والحث على تمسك بكتاب الله وسنة رسوله ودعاء إلى الهداة والدلاله على الخير ابتقاء وجه الله وَمرضاتِه وقربه وثوابه سبحانه وتعالى. All praise is for Allah, Lord of the worlds. I intend to learn and teach, to remember and remind, to benefit myself and to benefit others, to derive usefulness and extend it to others, to encourage adherence to the Book of Allah and the Sunnah of His Messenger وسلم, to call to guidance and direct towards good, thereby seeking the countenance of Allah, His divine pleasure, closeness and His reward, the Most Exalted and High. Amen. Please note that you can find that du'a on our Instagram page at Miss Women, and please come over to Facebook and join our Miss Women Halakha, a private group for sisters where, inshallah, you can find episodes easily available, all current and previous episodes, inshallah, of both our podcast series and other interesting bits and pieces, inshallah. In our last episode, we finished off by talking about What are the main principles and values of the status quo of the political and economic right? Today, inshallah, we will be going into that a little bit more and particularly looking at the genealogy of those ideas, the origins of those ideas, where did they come from and what effect did they have and what are the implications for those ideas today upon us as Muslims. There are a couple of words and terms which can be a little bit confusing and it's important to know that they more or less mean the same thing. So when we talk about the status quo and when we talk about conservativism, we're really discussing the same set of ideas and values and philosophies and practices. However, this concept of the status quo is a little bit more general in the sense that it covers the whole of it from the beginning whereas conservativism is a name and a label that was given to this set of values and ideas and philosophies around the time of the French Revolution. They refer to the same thing, basically, and that's important to note. So these two terms refer to the political, social and economic thought, philosophies and practices that were established and institutionalised by Western European including British or rather English, German and French philosophers, leaders, economists and colonialists in the time from around the 17th to the 19th centuries. There was obviously something before that and after that as we continue into the 21st century, but this middle section is really the most important for the consistent development and application of these philosophies and ideas and practices. Now, it wasn't just that the main thinkers behind this way of understanding the world who emerged from Western Europe stayed there, but rather their ideas traveled with their compatriots through their colonial experiences and colonial adventures and came to be established in the lands of other people, of non-European people, and of those who they deemed required some type of civilising and some type of bringing into a new religious type of tradition, if possible, where they could bring their religion or otherwise to have their own religions tempered to some extent in order to accommodate this new type of European thinking. So it wasn't something that remained in Europe, but rather it spread to the entire world. And what the West has managed to do, Uh, in a very significant way, is to shape the rest of the world in its own image. And it managed to do that through the establishment of these status quo ideas and practices. The main values and ideas that are included in this way of thinking are really summed up in the United States Declaration of Independence by the three words, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So therefore, these values required a political system and an economic system which would enshrine those values and at the same time protect them and ensure that the members of the society who were a part of that political system would be able to live lives of freedom or liberty and pursue wealth in whatever way they wanted to, and in an unrestricted way through free market economies, and in doing so, pursue their happiness. So it's a very materialistic way of being. Now, these values emerged, of course, from the Judeo-Christian tradition, and they go back even a little bit further, which we're going to look at now, and now they're associated, for example, with the Christian right and with the evangelical movement in America, particularly. Uh, but what really happened was that these values became associated with people of reason, so rather than people of a religious and metaphysical mentality. So even though they are couched in a framework of Christian religious values, the primary intent is not really to bring about a Christian worshipping type of society that bases its whole understanding of being on metaphysical religious values, but that rather those metaphysical religious values should support their materialistic intention and allow for the full pursuit of materialistic fulfilment. Okay, so where did all these ideas come from originally? Well, in 1215, in England, there was a king called King John, who was having some issues and difficulties with his barons. Now, at the time, there was a political system of the crown, of the ruler who was divinely inspired by God or who was a representative of God, apparently. And he had a group of aristocrats called barons and other people under him like dukes and others who were the landowners, And he used to tax them. And of course, the peasants or the farmers who worked for these wealthy people were considered like property of them, not exactly like slaves, but almost. And so obviously, the aristocratic classes had a lot of power if they chose to wield it. In this case, they were tired of taxes being imposed on them by the king, which apparently were used to fund his very expensive overseas wars. And it seems that some things have never changed, and so they rebelled, and they confronted him, they didn't want to pay these taxes, and there was some type of consultative process, and they reconciled this issue through a document called the Magna Carta. And in that, there was a very important phrase, or a very important clause, which stated that All free men had the right to justice and a free trial. So this meant that there couldn't be any absolute rule over anybody else without recourse to some type of system of justice whereby people could bring their case if they felt that there was a wrong being committed against them and that they would be able to have their appeal uh, heard in such a way and adjudicated according to their peers. So this was a very important value because it meant basically that there was now a rule of law which was governing the land and that nobody including the king or any authority was above that rule of law and in doing so it created a sort of liberation for the people only for the rich people of course because it meant now that there was a recognition of essential rights and liberties, and that they were in a position to have those well enshrined and protected and ensured for them. This uh, revision of the Magna Carta and process of consultation continued for several decades, uh, particularly during the lifetime of King Henry III, who was King John's son, and it created something called parliaments, which literally means speakings together whereby the people who are able to, the rich people, uh, knew that they could resolve issues in this way and protect their rights, and this really set the scene for the emergence of parliamentary government many, many centuries later. However, this concept of all people being subjected to the rule of law was uh, very significant, and it actually was one of the main inspirations for the American Declaration of Independence, which would come later in the 18th century, and even informed the creation of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights in 1945. So as you can see, this concept of people having freedoms that needed to be protected through law was something that developed quite early, and it became the basis for the establishment of the European political context. If we skip forward to the 1600s and the Enlightenment period, then we have a bit of a change in how human beings were perceived. So... Prior to that, we had a ruling class of these landowners and barons and kings and the aristocracy and the peasants who worked for them. But during the Enlightenment period, there was a whole shift in thinking where they began to take on a more scientific method and a more empirical way of understanding the world around them. Whereas prior to that, a lot of their knowledge had been based on a superstition or some type of mysticism, which came from their religious beliefs but it wasn't scientific in any way one of the main philosophers of the enlightenment period was Immanuel Kant who after well quite a time after actually almost two centuries in 1784 he built on what had been developed through the 1600s and after the first forays by his colonial predecessors And through this discovery of this so-called new world, there came about all sorts of new experiences and new knowledge. And he was one who tried to merge both aspects of how they understood themselves through the phenomenal and the numinal worlds. So phenomenal being things that were tangible, that could be seen, that could be scientifically measured. And numinal was that which was belief or some type of understanding of the metaphysical and of things that weren't tangible but more had to do with the state of a person's heart. So he tried to bring the two together in a more systematic and philosophical way to show these two aspects of humanity. However, the mystical part or the faith part got worked out of it eventually and. Human beings came to be known really for their reason and for their pursuit of the material. One of the main contributors to that view was the development of law and parliamentary law because people's rationality was deemed to be valid or not, depending on the types of laws that they would subject themselves to. So if people chose certain laws that they wish to follow and that they wish to obey, then they were considered to be of great reason and fulfilling their potential as human beings. And it's through this concept that democracy was really developed because democracy is about people representing others to help them all create laws that they want to obey. And so if a law is created by the people for the people and it's not imposed upon people from an authoritarian source like a king or any other type of dictatorial sort of government, then this is really the height of human reason because now people are deciding for themselves and judging for themselves and using themselves as the standard of measure. Now, at that time, of course, there was the peak of European colonialism or just about the peak in the 1700s, just prior to when Kant wrote his first work about enlightenment. And there was the American War of Independence and just after that, the French Revolution. And the French Revolution went from 1789 to 1799 and... And it was at that time that this concept of the right and the left was born. So in the chambers where the monarchy, the French monarchy, was seated and was listening to what was going on and the issues in society, those who sided with the monarchy and wanted to retain the system of the monarchy and subjects sat on the right-hand side of the chamber. And those who were opposed to the monarchy and who wanted to bring it down and bring in a secular system they sat on the left of the chamber and that is where the two terms came from so it seemed easier just to refer to the right or the left as the monarchists and those who wanted to retain the system and the left those who wanted to oppose the system and bring it down through revolution. So the right and the left is where those terms were coined. One of the main issues that colonialism brought about was of course that of trade because now the whole world was opened up like one huge market. So individual companies became extremely powerful and pushed their authorities to make sure that their trade in the world was unregulated and that they were able to do exactly what they wanted to. So it was through that, of course, that private companies ran the slave trade. They ran the trade in spices and materials and all sorts of goods, and they were almost like their own type of governments. They ran themselves, basically, and particularly the Dutch East India Company, which was operating mostly in Indonesia and Southeast Asia, and uh, with their main port there in Cape Town, then they were basically doing whatever they wanted and they were like a whole system unto themselves. So they didn't want any government interference and this is one of the key aspects of conservatism where there is very minimal government intervention and where free enterprise and trade can go unhindered. Now, that required a political system to preserve that. So if you have all these big and really wealthy companies running around the world, basically doing what they want, that when it comes back to their own countries, then they need a political system that will enable that to continue. And this is where liberal democracy and capitalism come in. Liberal democracy is basically where, as we've mentioned what the basis of democracy is, but it's where free men can give consent to other free men to represent their interests in the lawmaking process such that all their interests based on the principles of freedom and the pursuit of wealth and happiness would be preserved. And that's what has shaped the concept of our political systems in the Western world and some of those that were adapted in uh, colonised countries but basically, this is this has come about to make sure that those who had money were able to retain their money, and the appointment of people in the parliamentary process to represent that for them, and to make sure that there were limited uh, government regulations and limited intervention into how they pursued their trade and their wealth. That was their goal, and everybody in their circle benefited from that. And this really came about in the colonial age and predated the Industrial Revolution, which was the next stage. So basically the liberal democratic and the capitalist system of commerce, whereby people had open markets, that was now fortified under these concepts of the rule of law, the open market economy and private property. And of course, that was only for free white men. And interestingly enough, They managed to secure that for themselves, all the while trading in other people's lives and other people's blood and other people's land and goods that were stolen or that were usurped from the original owners of that property. And they used that, of course, to build their own interests and develop their own countries and develop their own personal wealth. Now, originally, liberal democracy was not about values of freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and freedom of conscience and freedom of religion and freedom of the press. Nor was it about the preservation of civil rights and human rights and political freedoms for all people. That came much later. And, in fact, that didn't really come about until sort of the late 19th and the early 20th century, and that was the time when women uh, fought for the right to be enfranchised, which means to get the vote. That was the suffragette movement. And just prior to the suffragette movement, former slaves in America, former male slaves were given the right to vote. And this concept of universal human rights really came about in, uh, well, became enshrined in 1945. So those types of values which liberal democracies meant to enshrine didn't come until much later but as we said the values that it did enshrine at the beginning was this concept of freedom, freedom of wealth and the pursuit of happiness for white people men only. Thereafter we got the industrial revolution and we saw that there were great changes in the living conditions and in the societies particularly in Britain and in Germany and France and countries in Western Europe and then that is when the Marxist view came along so Karl Marx and Frederick Engels worked together and in about 1848 they published their communist manifesto and this became the first challenge to this whole status quo of political economic and social institutions and structures and values and standards that had been put into place through the development of Europe and through the colonial expansion. So that's when the first real challenge came, and that's when the left was really born. So originally it was there from the French Revolution, but it didn't really get going um, in full opposition to the status quo until about that time, about the 1850s. And that will be the topic of our next episode, inshallah, because too much to do all of these things in one go. So basically what the conservative movement does is, in the face of this conflict that the left created for it from about the 1850s, since then it's been trying to maintain and preserve and conserve itself. And that's where this word conservatism really comes in. So there are people who believe in these principles and they believe in liberal democracy and they believe in free markets and they believe in having as little government intervention into their economic their private economic lives and also their personal lives as possible and they believe that the only way to continue that their fundamental rights such as those are maintained is through the preservation and conservation of those values And the institutions and the structures that enabled those values to be established and that enabled their civilizations and societies to thrive under those values and structures. Of course, this has got nothing to do with the rest of the world and the rest of humankind, including women and enslaved people and all those others whose land they took and stole and the genocide that went on in order for this select and very exclusive group of people to pursue those values. Of course, it just doesn't really pay any attention to that because that's not the point. The point is that these values of liberalism, of liberty, that they should be maintained. And it's through that that they feel that society is maintained and that, first of all, that reasonable people develop proper values and they develop a proper way of understanding themselves and their families and their societies, and that they are therefore imbued with the ability to be reasonable and to make reasonable judgments and to be leaders and to continue in this process of creating societies in which individual wealth and property is allowed to flourish and that there should be a very moral foundation to society which people know right from wrong, have good manners and it's through that that Western civilization would be enabled to continue and flourish. And there are some proponents for that who are quite well known apart from the obvious uh, conservative politicians that would be in anyone's society at the moment as well as conservative thinkers and philosophers although they are becoming fewer and fewer as the left increases its dominance in all fields particularly in academia and particularly in politics although when it comes to economics you don't really get too many lefters these days complaining about the free market because everybody is trying to to be wealthy, people who are out there trying to get wealth in whatever way that they can. So this free market idea persists and it still dominates. And there are some countries whose governments do really try to uh, control a lot of the wealth development in their own countries. But for the most part, the world has been completely dominated by the free market economy idea and uh, that's that's the status quo when it comes to economics. So what are the implications for Muslims with this conservative status quo system? Well historically of course colonization and the way in which Europe came and imposed its very alien ways and ideas upon non-European people and in doing so they sought to replace indigenous ways and indigenous social political and economic systems One way that they tried to do that and have a huge impact in Muslim lands was of course through the educational system. So when Napoleon went to Egypt he set about with the advice of his closest people destroying the educational system in Egypt and he had thousands and thousands of imams and scholars executed and set about destroying the Madrasa system. And the French also in um, northern Africa did that, and they destroyed learning, and they knew that if they could break people's connection to the Quran, if they could break their systems of learning and imparting knowledge, then they would be able to break apart their society. And the first thing, of course, that any colonial And uh, invading nation does is try and corrupt women and they would bring in European women who would be mixing with men and who would be dressed in a different way and although they still have this European sense of decorum and what was suitable or not then they would bring in other women though and they would try and corrupt the people they try and corrupt the men through foreign women and they would try and corrupt the women through foreign women and have these foreign women educate these sort of uncivilised and backwards Muslim women and try and bring them out a bit more uh, from what they thought was their homes and their backwardness. So that's usually the first two steps that any colonising force does, destroy the education system and corrupt the women. And they tried to do that in all the Muslim lands. Some had more success than others more recent versions of such colonial indictments on other people would come under the topic of what we call neoliberalism and they would take and they have taken the form of the military invasions into Afghanistan and into Iraq and the very famous speech by Laura Bush who was the wife of the then president George Bush Jr and she made a speech saying that the reason why America was going into Afghanistan was to liberate the women and to liberate them from their hijab and to liberate them from their backwards cultural and religious oppression. So conservative warmongers have tried to use different justifications for what they are doing and usually it has to do with the imposition or the replacement of traditional values With these liberal values, which they think is the way for people to go, but really it's just a very poor smokescreen for going in, stealing other people's natural resources, and creating another free and open market for them to dominate and profit from. So, where did all this find its full expression? As we said, in European colonialism. And it's so interesting that we have these incredible philosophers and thinkers. Coming out of Europe and coming out of North America, who are writing these amazing tracts and policies and incredible ways of understanding humankind. But whilst they were doing that, then they were enslaving people and living off the riches that they made, which were being born out of the blood, sweat, and tears of millions of people who were under their oppressive ownership. And this is where you really have to think about how valid is all that we've been looking at now. How valid and true are these types of ideas and principles? And just because they've been there now for several hundred years and have been the basis of Western civilization, uh, particularly in modern times, so it's upon these principles that our societies have been built, is it that they really are universal and right? Or is there another way of looking at the world? These are values that were developed by a very select group of people for their own benefit they had absolutely no qualms about using their reason to reason themselves into an understanding of the world that only they could benefit from and in doing so reason everybody else out and then not only did that happen but then they built an entire global system on their reasoning which put them at the top and everybody else was excluded from that. And then they built a whole new system, an economic, political, social and cultural system based on the values that they had reasoned for themselves alone. And that's why we have the type of world that we have today. That's why we have such inequality. That's why we have so many problems. That's why we have poverty because of this exclusivity that was centred around a very small group of people that was self-serving and that was only meant to be for them and nobody else so we can't overlook this major contradiction in values that human beings were born equal that human beings were born free and able to pursue wealth and pursue happiness when really that was only meant for an exclusive group And the unfortunate thing is that that contradiction and that very, very deep hypocrisy is the very foundation of Western society, of modern Western society, and this is extremely problematic. So if we look now at knowledge in terms of Islam and ontology, we look first of all at what Imam Ghazali said in book 26 of the Ihya, which is the book on Damid dunya, on the blameworthiness of the world. And he says there, Ad dunya mazra'atul which means that the dunya is the place of harvest for the akhira. So when we look at materialism from an Islamic point of view, then our need for material wealth and for material objects and for the pursuit and attainment of those should be only to benefit us, well, primarily in our akhirah, but also to bring about good while we're here in the dunya. So the ontology there is that we're not material beings, but that we are created beings, we're the slaves of Allah, and that we've been created to worship him. So here we're doing a bit of a look at, okay, we've seen this whole thing of liberalism now, but where does that stand compared to an Islamic understanding of being and knowledge and how we actually live. So we've gone through this in our Surah Al-Fatiha uh, podcast. And if you've been following, then you would know and be familiar with this. So uh, basically, we're the slaves of Allah and we presented three different types of ontology, three different models of ontology or Islam, Iman and Ihsan, um, the five lives of man that Imam haddad wrote about and also the sayer model which is the ijbari and the ikhtiari so we're on these two simultaneous journeys so this is what characterizes our being here in the dunya and when it comes to epistemology and where we attain our knowledge primarily we get our knowledge from wahi from revelation also from reason and also from our senses from empirical knowledge we also Have a method of transmitting that knowledge through narration and through reason, knuckle and uckle. And we have different types of knowledge. There's necessary knowledge and acquired knowledge. We have legal rulings. And of course, we have quite a concept of ignorance. And there's simple ignorance, which is when a person just doesn't know something. And then there's compound ignorance. When a person doesn't know that they don't know and also that what they think they know about something is contradictory to the reality of that thing. So they think they know what something is, but it's actually completely different to the reality. So you'll ask people, oh, what's Islam? And they'll tell you it's a bunch of terrorists. And so obviously that's compound ignorance because what they think is not congruent with the reality of what Islam is. And they don't know that. So therefore, that is compound ignorance. When it comes to pursuing freedom, then... Our Islamic concept of freedom is quite different because for us to be free means that we're no longer tied to our nafs and we're no longer hindered by the shackles which would keep us as creatures of the dunya. So we live in the world, but when we're able to overcome our lower selves, overcome shaitan and overcome our love of the dunya, then we will have attained freedom. And when it comes to wealth then we need to acquire wealth so that we're able to distribute it to fulfil our core pillar in Islam, which is the payment of zakat. and whoever qualifies is obliged to pay, and otherwise to give sadaqah all the time, to give through food, through gifts, through money, through the building of wells and schools, hospitals, whatever. So... Wealth is a very good thing in Islam and it needs to be used properly and the most important aspect about materialism from our point of view is that it's something that we seek to do good with but not to be attached to and there are many, many stories in our tradition about that. Uh, One of them is the story of a great saint who lived in Hadramaut and he had date farms and one year he had a crop of very average type of dates. And so he said to his uh, people, uh, pack these up and take them to Basra in Iraq and sell them. And they said, knowing that Basra was really the big central marketplace for that whole region in terms of trade, um, for dates. And so they knew that these dates were of low quality and that it wasn't really worth sending them there because people wouldn't buy them because people knew a good date from a bad date. Uh, But anyway, he said, pack them up and send them. So a a caravan of these low quality dates was sent to Basra. And the head of of the travel, he had to wait, of course, for the things to be sold in order to come back. Uh, with the goods with the response to the trade and so he sat for quite a while and he'd sold them or put them in the shops of various traders until one day a woman came in and she said to the shopkeeper my daughter is very ill and I need something that will help her do you have any dates that would help her and that might be a cure for her and so he thought for a while and he said well I have these dates but they're not very good Uh, But they come from a very spiritual man, a wali in uh, Hadramaut. So maybe you should try them and and maybe there's uh, khair and shifa and remedy, a cure for you in them. So she bought some and she went home and her daughter ate them. And Bikudratillah, the daughter recovered from her illness. And then the word spread and people came and they all came and bought up these dates from Hadramot. And of course, they were sold at a high price because now their value had increased uh, due to the uh, restorative uh, qualities that they had. And so the head of the trade journey went back and with vast amounts of wealth back to Hadramaut and back to the person who had owned them. And so he was most unconcerned about that. And he just said, Alhamdulillah, and laughed because he doesn't care about the money, and totally unconcerned. And that's the attitude that we should have. Alhamdulillah, this is our lessons, inshallah, that we need to look at what our values are and what our attitude to freedom is and our attitude towards wealth and to take from our scholars and to take from the pious people and their stories and the example that they have set. Of course, the Prophet wasalam, being the best example of all, he never slept a night with any money in his house. And if he knew there was money or coins, he would go out and give it to somebody before he came back and slept. The Prophet ﷺ had asked for people to donate their wealth towards a battle. And Sayyidina Umar came with half of his wealth. And the Prophet ﷺ said, "Uh, where's the other half? And he said, I've left it for my family. And then Sayyidina Abu Bakr, he came and he said, Ya Rasulullah, this is all my wealth. And the Prophet ﷺ asked him, well, what have you left for your family? And he said, I've left them Allah and his Rasul. And then Sayyidina Umar knew that he would never attain the rank of Sayyidina Abu Bakr. Inshallah, these are our examples and we ask Allah to give us barakah in our time and in our wealth and to give us a great and vast understanding of what all these principles and values and ideas really are And more importantly, to know what benefits us through our Dean and not to mix them up, but to understand the right way, the straight way, the straight pathway, and not to get sidetracked with other ideas and ideals which look like they're better, which look like they're more encompassing, but at the end of the day are very miserly and self-serving for very few people and which are in themselves a massive contradiction, as history has clearly indicated and continues to indicate to us today. جزاك الله خير، الله يحفظكم، وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم. I look forward to joining you for our next episode, insha'Allah. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.